Hello and welcome to this, part two of our conversation on Pseudomonas. Part one covers the basics of the Pseudomonas genus, and in this episode, we focus on treatment and Pseudomonas resistance mechanisms. Hope you enjoy it. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the piece done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, what's that in your hand? Oh, well, this, I'm treating myself. There's nothing better than a glass of cold, fresh, bubbling fizz. Well, I disagree, Callum. I like my fizz once a year in Edinburgh. Oh. And I'm going to get my wish, because the Federation of Infection Societies meeting is on the 14th and 15th of November in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh International Conference Centre. Oh, I see what you did there, because fizz can be sparkling wine, but also a really great conference. Uh, Callum, are we going to be there? We are going to be there. Ah, and is the British Infection Association having any sessions that people might be interested in? They're, well, I'm sure you're interested in all their sessions. Mm, but in particular? In particular, well, there's a update on Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, which if you don't manage, then what are you doing and where do you work? Because that's bread and butter infectious <laughs> diseases. And very excitingly, uh, particularly to James, the lead author of the Sabato study, Akim Kashk. Yeah, there's also going to be a talk on neurosurgical infections and uh, in particular a presentation on the new ESPA guidelines for the management of brain abscess. There's going to be a, something close to my own heart, a session on medical education infection. Maybe I'll be talking about it. Uh, including updates on undergraduates and postgraduate educations. Um, Sounds so- awful. I'd much rather go to the HLH MDT where I finally figure out what the hell I'm going to do about this disease that's not an infection, but somehow we have to constantly manage it anyway. I'll tell you something that I've got no idea about. Ophthalmic oh, infections. Well, hopefully after the session at Fizz... You will have an idea about it. Ocular TB, candida endophthalmitis, and the management of keratitis. Well, I'll drink to that, and I'll see you there on the 14th and 15th of November in Edinburgh. Cheers. So this this kind of horrible organism, Pseudomonas, that we're having our sort of Pseudomon episode about. James, how do we get rid of it? How do we treat it? Well, this is about to become a real moan and not a Pseudomon, uh, Callum, because Whoa. this is absurdly difficult to kill. And Pseudomonas, I, I, I think of, uh, when I think of my day job, I think of an infection specialist has two great enemies uh, in life in the bacteria space this is and one of them is staph aureus in the blood and the other is pseudomonas uh, wherever it is uh, because it's got loads of intrinsic resistances and loads of acquired resistance mechanisms for the few uh, drugs that we can use so what are they well there are basically three classes of drug that we can use beta-lactams quinolones and aminoglycosides and that's it. 
So taking the beta lactams first. <laughs> Um, the uh, penicillins, um, you only start to acquire antisudomonal activity once you get to the uh, to the antisudomonal penicillin. So that's piperacillin and tisarcillin. So tisarcillin was the uh, beta-lactam ingredient of tisarcillin clavulanate or timentin. That's not available in Europe at the moment. And piptas, piperacillin tazobactam or tazosin or zosin in America, is the combination that we use. So you could use piperacillin on its own, and apparently in France they do have piperacillin on its own, but the UK, and I'm pretty sure the US and, and Australasia too, only have piperacillin in combination with the, with the tazobactam. Which is probably quite useful in pseudomonas. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's sensitive to just piperacillin. And then for the cephalosporins, you, going up the generations, you acquire anti-pseudomonal activity, somewhat confusingly, halfway through the third generation. So keftazidime is a third gen, so is keftraxone and kefetaxime, but they don't have anti-pseudomonal activity, but keftazidime does. I think that the taz is a bit like the taz of tazacin, that's how I remember it. Uh, so for any, anybody who wants a mnemonic. Chocolate bar taz. Yeah. Uh, and then Aztreonam is AZT, which is just Taz misspelled. So anything with a Taz or an AZT <laughs> in it has okay. antisubomonal yeah, activity. I can get that logic. Um, and then your fourth gens, your, your Kefapim, it's got antisubomonal activity also. And then when you're up to the carbapenems, Ertapenem doesn't have antisubomonal activity, but meropenem and imipenem, silostatin, and doropenem, which we don't use very much, but does have anti-pseudomonal activity. And then astreonam, the monobactam on its own uh, as well. So that's a pretty limited set of the kind of things that you would normally want to, to use. In the UK, we focus... Our, our, our main, the main ones that we would use there, I think, would be piptaz and meropenem. Uh, so a lot of, um, you know, neutropenic sepsis protocols will use Piptaz as their um, broad-spectrum beta-lactam because it's got anti-pseudomonal activity. And if you, you know, the patient defervesces and you don't identify pseudomonas, you will step down to comoxiclav uh, because it's broad-spectrum, but you have ensured that they don't have pseudomonas on board first. When it comes to the quinolones, you're gets anti-pseudomonal activity with the second gens, so ciprofloxacin and ofloxacin, and the third gen, so levofloxacin, but you lose it um, when you go up to moxie. So moxie doesn't have uh, pseudomonal activity, but uh, has has strep, staph aureus, and anaerobe. Uh, mm, yeah, that's anaerobe bit is the bit that we always forget about with moxifloxacin. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that's... Uh, uh, you know, it's got its own uses, but pseudomonal treatment is not one of them. So it's just Cipro and Levo that we would use widespread uh, in the UK. And then for the aminoglycosides, this is a bit of uh, a bit of an evolving field We might need to do a whole here. different episode on this. I know. I tell you what, though, um, if I can briefly big up another podcast, SIDFARM, the Society for ID Pharmacists, have a podcast called Breakpoints, um, which is all about sort of drug pharmacokinetics, PD, and um I'm passingly familiar with We've actually account. not even mentioned the elephant in the room, which is which is that James is here in the north. 
So. Well, I, I continue, Callum. Yeah. You, your three big aminic glycosides that are used very commonly are, are gentamicin, tobramycin, and amikacin. And obviously in Scotland we use a lot of gentamicin. It's our, in our empirical therapy, it's our gram-negative backbone. There are other bits of the UK where it's used much less. And I know that there's there's kind of reluctance further afield to use it based on toxicity issues mostly. So Breakpoints have recently done a mini-series called Breakpoints Talks Breakpoints where they talk about updates to the CLSI and US cast uh, breakpoints. So they're, they're two separate breakpoint setting organisations in the in the US, Calum. And believe it or not, the FDA also sets their own breakpoints, which is important because you can't really register a diagnostic test until you know what the FDA breakpoints are going to be because that's what they'll be tested against. In the EU, we've only got UCAST um, to work with, um, but USCAST recently did a deep dive into the um, breakpoints for pseudomonas for aminoglycosides. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So, so we um, don't need to record that. We can just point people towards that. We can that just episode. point people towards oh, that. God. But okay. um, uh, the, the long and the short of it is that gentamicin, uh, the gent pseudo uh, breakpoint has been dropped. And it was dropped from UCAST a couple of years ago. And I'm not sure who started looking into this first, USCAST or UCAST. But uh, UCAST dropped it in the, I think, the 2021 breakpoints release as they release on the 1st of uh, January uh, each year. Mm -hmm. uh, an update. Up, there was an update on the 29th of June 2023. Oh, was there? Yeah. What for? You'll have to go check it out yourself. All right, I suppose I will. Uh, but the uh, CLSI are also dropping their uh, their breakpoints. And the, the reason for it is, so all of these bug drug breakpoints for the older drugs, a lot of them are historical and based on, you know, a paper here and a paper there. And uh, USCAS went back and, and sort of looked at all the, the data they've got. And when you have a, when you're setting a microbiological breakpoint, um, your, what you do is you look at the, the MIC uh, distribution of the, of the wild type population. So if you imagine that as a bell curve, um, you, your ECOF is at the sort of top end of the bell curve and your MIC is at or above that. So above all, what you don't want is you don't want your breakpoint bisecting the wild type population. Because if you've got, if you know, if you do some testing on a sample and the MIC is above that, you don't know if that is acquired resistance or if that's just member of the wild type population that was above your breakpoint to begin with. Yeah. And so anyway, when they looked at the gen breakpoints for Pseudomonas, it was basically in the middle of the wild type distribution. And so the both UCAST and CLSI have come to the conclusion that you can use gentamicin to treat Pseudomonas, and they've dropped it. So you can use Tobra, uh, and it's probably the one that they would recommend. And you can use Amikacin, and I think the current status is that CLSI say that you can use amicacin for urine, or is it USCAST, but not systemic infections. The UCAST have put uh, breakpoints out for urine and systemic, but for systemic they've put the breakpoints in brackets, which is a sort of a new code that UCAST have um, introduced saying, look, we know some countries use this for systemic infections and some don't. Just do whatever your uh, country recommends and in the meantime this is the breakpoint that we would recommend yeah, yeah. so ucast 13 support we're on we're 13.1 now i guess so they've got they've got breakpoints set for tobermycin amicacin for pseudomonas infections originating from the urinary tract and then for both 
both drugs for systemic infections, they've got the breakpoints in brackets, and there's a link to a document in UCAS 13.1 uh, breakpoint tables and what, what that means, which we won't go into too much detail. And for gentamicin, they just got insufficient evidence. And, and I think there's a big debate there about, you know, where that leaves places where they are, you know, like Scotland, where there are there is very widespread use of gentamicin and a, a wealth of clinical experience in using gentamicin to treat pseudomonas infections with good clinical outcomes. So, you know, just because there's no breakpoint doesn't well, mean Well, I wonder, Callum, if, um, if a lot of those treatments with good clinical outcomes were urinary tract infections um, because you don't get... Well, the same plasma levels in a lot of the kinds of places where pseudomonas is infecting, and usually you would be using a second agent. Yeah, although we use it for pneumonia, and it, you know, I, I don't know. I I think there's a there's a big debate about like obviously the you know UCAS do great work in producing scientifically robust guidelines, but sometimes when we're particularly in something like pseudomonas, where there are such limited treatment options, mm. it it's really difficult to say there's not enough evidence. And I, just thinking from a general perspective of in medicine, we're constantly balancing uncertainty and risk and the risk of different things. And if you're reliant on one organization and they say like, oh, we're not, you know, can't be scientifically exact, therefore we won't give you any recommendation. I actually think that's not very helpful. And it'd be more helpful to say like, Okay, well, there's maybe not enough evidence to say specifically this is the exact right answer, but this is this is probably good enough or just about right or something to guide decision making rather than just withdrawing than it. Than dropping it. Yeah. What what I wonder is why they didn't maintain a urine breakpoint. Yeah. You know, just they do that with pibnacillin and they do it with fosfomycin. There's there's precedent for saying you can only use this thing in the urine, but here's the breakpoint for that because yeah. gentamicin. You know, you get urine concentrations of about 100 times your plasma concentration. So if you get a plasma C-max of maybe mm, 8 to 10, uh, then you will get close to a 1,000. And I would be willing to bet that whatever the wild-type distribution of Pseudomonas is, I don't know, I'm guessing it's not a 1,000. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And but, but they dropped it. And in their defence, you can just swap out Tobramycin. Swap, swap in tobramycin for gent in almost every situation and be safer and it would be you know safer yeah. than it's a big there's, a, there's going to be probably I don't know what's going to happen in Scotland but watch that no. space but I think yeah there are there any other things any other things that you want to mention uh, about treating pseudomonas perhaps in the urinary tract callum no no more thing else let's move on I don't know what you're talking about <sighs> Well, maybe I'll mention a couple of things. So, um, wait, did we not? I listened to this podcast recently, and uh, I'm sure that someone mentioned in a urine drug episode mm-hmm. something about using antibiotics that we don't normally think work against pseudomonas for urinary tract infections with pseudomonas, mm-hmm. and I think it was phosphomycin yes. and doxycycline. Mm. <gasps> Yeah, we have mentioned this in urine drug penetrance, but I thought I'd just mention it in the bug episode itself because not everybody will have listened to it. Why not? Um, but yes, <laughs> phosphomycin. So th- there are issues with phosphomycin resistance. Pseudomonas can acquire phos A, which is the resistance mechanism, fairly easily. Uh, but 
fosfomycin can be used for urinary drug infections as long as the ECOF um, is uh, below 256 or 256 itself. Um, so you need no, so to... as long as the MIC is less than the ECOF, which is 256. Not that the ECOF is... The ECOF doesn't change. Yeah, sorry. The ECOF is always the same. As long as the MIC is less than the ECOF, which is 256. Yeah. So you need your lab needs to do some extra testing for that, or else you're just using it blind, which we do sometimes, um, and just see how the patient does, um, if it's the only option. And then the other thing that you can use is, is doxycycline. So doxys, you get a plasma Cmax of about 4, and the MIC for Pseudomonas is about 150. So you wouldn't be able to use it for systemic infections. But doxycycline is 60% concentrated in the urine, and you get a urine Cmax of about 300. And because your half-life of doxycycline is 16 hours, that then means that 16 out of 24 hours, you've got uh, a doxyurine concentration that's above the pseudomonal um, uh, MIC, the average pseudomonal MIC. So that's one option uh, that you've got specifically for urinary tract infections. There's papers published on it. It's not a widespread practice. UCAS don't issue any breakpoints for doxycycline. Hmm. Um, it's quite but, hard as a laboratory to issue guidance saying use this as a potential option when we don't really have a robust way of testing the organisms. Exactly, yeah. But because there's the only other oral option is quinolones, and in some people that's you know clearly not appropriate, um, then it is possible to consider it. So I yeah. considered it last month. I was had a an old guy who was in his late 80s he had a stone uh, in his uh, renal tract and it had become colonised with pseudomonas. Like the last five UTIs were all pseudomonas. Mm-hmm. And urology were going to remove that stone in about six weeks' time. So do I empirically treat infections as they arise? Do I put them on suppressive quinolone therapy? Or do I try putting them on suppressive doxycycline therapy, which would be much less likely to cause you know, drug side effects and, and things like that. And um, uh, in the end, we opted for phosphomycin with, with doxy as the backup yeah. uh, plan. But, you know, that that's, you can imagine listener situations in which you don't want to give long-term quinolone therapy, not mm. least because you're just, you know, um, uh, in cases where the urinary tract has some sort of nidus infection, you'll just get cipro resistant. Yeah, and then you um, lost it for when you really needed it. Yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah. go back and listen to the urine drug penetrance episode. I think that Jane talks about that quite well. When you're treating pseudomonas, what doses are you using? Just the standard doses? or No, so pseudomonas, as we talked about um, briefly, and we'll go into more detail next, is it's got lots of resistance mechanisms. And, and in some of those drugs, you need to use a higher dose. And what you often see the laboratory reporting is that you that there'll be some drugs, so Piperacillin Tazobactam, we reported as um, I. So usually we say S, I, or R. S is susceptible or sensitive, big debate. R is resistant. And I used to mean intermediate, and now it generally means increased dose. That's what the I stands for. So yeah, susceptible so we, we at using increased dose. I. Um, so you can say you should susceptible dose-dependent or SDD. Um, we found that a lot of people didn't really know what that meant. So we, we, we say sensitive at higher doses. Yeah. 
So not susceptible at higher doses. No, no, we've we've uh, put our flag in the ground there. <laughs> um, but that that then means that you know what's a higher dose? Well, UCAS have a list. Uh, on their uh, website of what they consider to be the standard dose and what they consider to be the higher dose. Yeah, so, so on what they're saying the breakpoints table thirteen point yeah. one. There's a tab on there for dosing. So what what they're saying is use that higher dose in these infections. And actually, for for pseudomonas, um, there's they they always want you to use the higher doses. So what they've done is for some uh, drugs. Uh, they have set the S breakpoint at 0 0.001. So that means that, you know, that that's just an arbitrarily low number. You'll never get a, a, mm -hmm. a breakpoint that low. So that basically means that if you are below the R breakpoint, so like say for peptides, the R breakpoint is 16. So if you're 8, 4, 2, 1, 0.5 or 0.25, it doesn't matter. You're still in the intermediate range, yeah. so you'll always recommend to use it at the higher doses. So, for example, that's 4.5 grams IV every six hours. Yeah. Or ideally, um, you know, use a continuous infusion or something like that. It's another way of, of doing it. Yeah. If you're going to use yeah. it. So what are the other things where you are... Uh, uh, using the higher dosage? So most of them actually. So keftazidine, higher dose, kefepime, uh, dorapenem, imipenem, celestatin, astrionam, ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, phosphomycin. And then the rest of them are, you, you can use a sort of standard dosing. Yeah. So what about if it's resistant to all the drugs that we've talked about already, which is uh, unfortunately not that unusual for pseudomonas. It's not, you know, unlike most organisms, it's, not unusual to, to get an antibiogram back and actually mm. you've got no treatment options. Or, 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 or in particular, no oral treatment options is very common. Yeah, or, or limited at least. Yeah, There are a few, I mean, obviously there's there's colistin and UCAS have issued a breakpoint, a bracketed breakpoint for colistin. But then the, the new kids on the block, the new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, which I sort of covered briefly in the... Uh, the basis of beta-lactamase inhibitors uh, episode, and we talked about in the in the MDR uh, episodes uh, too. Um, so keftolazine uh, with tazobactam, keftazidine with avabactam, kefidericol, the Trojan horse, uh, and then meropenem vaborbactam, imipenem silostatin with relabactam. Uh, they all have anti-pseudomonal activity. Some are considered more for use with, with pseudomonas than others. So I think keftolazine and tazobactam was um, developed specifically for trying to treat anti-pseudomonal infections. I, I think I think in the UK, at least, because keftazidine avi and um, kefidericol, the Trojan horse, are available on the subscription model um, that NHS England has kind of brought in, then we would tend to favour using those two as opposed to the other three. Mm. I know we can get meropenem vaborbatin because we've used it in NADOS Royal Infirmary South, but I've never used imipenem relabactam or keftolazine tazobactam in, in anger. So I'm not too sure about the specifics of yeah. using those really. So it's great to have these new drugs, although I don't think it's unusual to see resistance to them as well. So um, it's maybe, you know, I guess it's just... But it's, it's going to continue to be and will always be a really problematic organism to, to try and treat. Yeah. So, so we're talking about we've kind of hinted at this quite a lot. So, why why is it so difficult to treat, Jim? What what are the sort of what what is it that pseudomonas is doing to make it such a pain? Why are we wanting to have a pseudomon about it? 
Well, it, it's because it's got loads of natural or intrinsic uh, resistance mechanisms, which it can then upregulate um, if it encounters an environment, in which case, you know, antibiotics are a significant kind of uh, hindrance to its growth. So people tend to divide these mechanisms into intrinsic, adaptive and acquired. And before I go on, I should probably um, uh, promote uh, breakpoints for the second time. Uh, in this podcast. I mean, if this podcast is telling you anything, it's that you should just go and subscribe to Breakpoint's podcast right away. Uh, but uh, their episode 59 uh, was all about pseudomonas resistance mechanisms. Um, and uh, they had a, an expert on. I have to say the audio quality of the, the guest that they had on was, was kind of poor, so it was not one to listen to in the gym. But it certainly was very extensive. It was about an hour and a half. Um, of of really detailed explanation of how badass Sunamonas is. And there's uh, on Twitter, which again I w- we will link to in the show notes, there's a g- really good infographic about the various different resistance mechanisms that, that Sunamonas has, because they're, they're really difficult to remember. And I'm not sure that there's much value in remembering all of them, but uh, at least knowing roughly how Sunamonas does what it does is kind of uh, worth knowing about. So in terms of intrinsic resistance, do you want to take this, Cal? Yeah, so I think that's something that I remember learning about in medical school. So Pseudomonas, it's got the three main ones are lower outer membrane permeability. So the drugs just can't get... So this is the outer membrane of the gram-negative cell yeah, wall. Yeah, so the outer membrane. So it's just, you know, a lot of drug action into the cell. You know, there's going to be passive and active transport. And it's just developed a way to, to sort of stop that... Uh, permeability. Compared to E. coli, Pseudomonas, the outer membrane is about 12 to 100 fold less easy to yeah. get across. Yeah. Uh, the second one is efflux pumps. So these are sort of mechanisms within the cell membrane where they specifically pump out yeah, bacteria. We'll, we'll talk about them below because uh, yeah, so they, they get up-regulated And then the third one is intrinsic beta-lactamases. So they tend to call carry an uh, enzyme called OXA50. And also uh, AMP-C, which we've talked about in the beta-lactamases episode. Yeah, um, and there's a pseudomonas-specific one that's that's kind of always on at a low level, which sort of confers resistance to, you know, just about everything. Yeah. Um, it's not active against piperacillin, though, which is interesting. Oh, is it? Apparently. Oh, because I was thinking when you combine piperacillin with tazobactam, then you... Apparently the tazobactam's for other ESBLs, which they can also... Oh. Uh, uh, carry. Well, that's, that's your free intrinsic, lower outer membrane permeability, efflux pumps, and intrinsic beta-lactamases. What about adaptive? Well, adaptive is, um, the these are adaptive and required blend into each other a bit, but the uh, adaptive resistance is usually transient, which is why it's not a good idea to expose people with pseudomonal infection to antibiotics over a prolonged period of time, unless you have to. Um, like for CF patients, for example. Um, but uh, the mutations there are unstable, and when the stimulus is removed, they tend to revert to, the, to their wild-type pattern. So the, that that will be suppression of genes, uh, uh, gene expression, which would uh, kind of result in uh, reduced susceptibility to, to the antimicrobial. But by far and away, the most important... Um, uh, section here is is acquired resistance to the stuff that actually does treat pseudomonas. Uh, so they are um, there are some which target lots and lots of different uh, drugs, and there are some that are specific to to aminoglycosides and and uh, quinolones and and beta lactams. So I'll talk about them later. But let's talk about a couple of things which 
pseudomonas does, which can reduce susceptibility to lots of different things, and they are porins and efflux pumps. Mm-hmm. So porins first. So they, you know, as you said, the outer membrane is not very permeable. Porins sit on the outer membrane and facilitate transport of nutrients uh, from uh, the uh, environment into the into the transmembrane uh, domain, and then some antibiotics go there as well. And they, they've got other functions. They they kind of contribute to the stability of the membrane. Some of them are involved in signaling. Pseudomonas has about twenty six of them, uh, but the main one example uh, that is uh, important for us is OPRD. So. Uh, OPR is outer porin uh, receptor, and then D is just um, uh, specifies which one it is. And OPR D can be lost by pseudomonas, and that contributes to beta-lactam, but in particular carbapenem uh, resistance. So if you lose OPR D, you become resistant to imipenem, silostatin, uh, and then your marrow MIC might go up. Uh, so uh, it doesn't, uh, meropenem is more able to to get around OPRD loss than imipenem mm. because it gets transported in through other OPR receptors like OPRF, uh, which is generally not lost with pseudomonas. It's, it it kind of has to be there a lot of the time. And then talking about efflux pumps, um, just to give a bit of an overview of it, there are five families of efflux pumps that, that bacteria have. Now, you don't need to remember all this, but it's just... Interesting. I, I thought it was interesting because I didn't really know what this all this stuff meant. But there are two superfamilies, which are ABC, which stands for ATP binding cassette, and MFS, major facilitator superfamily. So they're they're two big efflux pumps, which most bacteria have. And then there are three smaller families, all of which are present in Pseudomonas. There's mate, multidrug, and toxic compound extrusion family. SMR, small MDR family. And RND, resistance nodulation cell division family. So the RND um, uh, efflux pumps are the the main ones that can be upregulated, and they're they're actually upregulated by default in stressful situations. So if the pseudomonas encounters an environment that it doesn't like, like an inflamed lung of a CF patient, it will just upregulate these efflux pumps by default, which means that you will get increase resistance almost by default as well. So that makes them very tricky to deal with because it's not like, it, it's almost not related to the antibiotic that you're giving. Um, so they, they'll be upregulated to a smaller amount and then you can make that worse by giving antibiotics and then the, the pseudomonas will respond accordingly. There are 12 efflux pumps in pseudomonas, R&D efflux pumps in pseudomonas, but four are clinically relevant. Before I go on, I should say, I've not rem- memorized this, yeah, and I don't lo- think you you've need to. You've kind of lost me a bit already. <laughs> so, um, so what I need to remember is there's efflux pumps, and the four clinically relevant ones are Mex AB Oper M, Mex CD Oper J, Mex EF Oper N, and Mex XY Oper M. And <laughs> so, what does Mex AB mean for the first one? So, the um, these are the individual components of. Uh, the efflux pump, so it's made up of three proteins. I should say all of this information is from a brilliant paper that came out in 2021 in Frontiers in Cellular and Infection Microbiology, which has very pretty pictures, Callum, which I think you should look at because it would explain it better. Can we tweet the pictures better. Um, we, I can try. I hope that wouldn't infringe copyright. It's by a guy called uh, Langendonk 
Neil and Fothergill. Those are the authors. Um, and the, it, it goes through in a lot of detail all the ways that Pseudomonas can acquire resistance in a, a few other ways that I'm not mentioning. So I'm just picking out the, um, the clinically important uh, bits. Mm -hmm. But say Mex A, uh, B operand, that'll be Mex A, Mex B proteins on top of each other. And OPRM is, is at the top. So it's it's in the outer membrane. It's what throws the thing out into the environment. And MEX-A will be maybe in the... Uh, uh, it'll start in the cytosol. Oh, it'll I go see. to the transmembrane Yeah, you see pictures space. of this and they're like really complicated machines almost. Yeah, and, like, and MEX-B wow. will start in the transmembrane space and it will take stuff from, from MEX-A, but it will also be able to take stuff from the transmembrane domain. From the transmembrane yeah, space. Okay. So no matter where the antibiotic is, it can be picked up by the efflux pump and thrown out yeah. via OPRM into the environment. So they're very complex machines. The the MEX-AB OPRM is constitutively active, so it's always working. And it extrudes most beta lactams, except imipenem and quinolones. So that's you know, that's two out of the three really. Um Mex C D Opera J just uh, works with quinolones and it's only in some uh, mutant uh, pseudomonas. MEX-EF operand is working on quinolones and imipenem. Uh, and then the, the interesting fact about that is that it's upregulated by something called MEX-T, which also downregulates OPRA-D. So OPRA-D is the porin which confers carbapenem resistance. So you can see that it's got, you know, it's got two resistance mechanisms happening in one if it's MEX-T transcription factor and then last one is mex xy operm which extrudes uh aminoglycosides and also kefepime the fourth generation kefalosporin so what's it like that's that's really complicated and even though i'm reading it off a piece of paper and talking to you about it right now and listening i'm still struggling with this so so i don't think that you need to remember this stuff i think it's worthwhile reading the frontiers thing but i think the take-home message from the loyal listener is that pseudomonas is terrifying okay. and it's got loads of different resistance mechanisms and at the moment there are no drugs to treat uh, efflux pump mediated resistance we've got your beta lactamase inhibitors for mm -hmm. beta lactamases but they're not a significant bit of pseudomonal resistance um it's all this stuff this kind of porin loss and efflux pumps, they all contribute to, you know, moderate to high level resistance against loads of different things. Um, and then the beta-lactamases, you know, you've got your AMP-C, which is comparing resistance, you know, to um, uh, most beta-lactamases and is induced by exposure to uh, aminopenicillins, but also cephalosporins. It will just if it goes into environment, even if you're using antibiotics which don't treat pseudomonas, it will uh, detect that and it will kick up expression of, of AMC um, regardless. Oh, is that is that a problematic when we're using things combination like amoxicillin gentamicin that we use? Um, I think it's an I, I think actually it's an argument to not rely on broad spectrum uh, uh, beta atoms like kephalosporins and um, and comoxiclav as your sort of backbone because that will drive uh, resistance not only to in, in intrabacterialis but also uh, things like pseudomonas. Mm, but I mean it's always there anyway so there's not a lot you can do about it. Okay. They they can acquire things like ESBL and carbapenemases. They're, they're not very um, it, it's not as common and they don't yeah. seem to acquire it as often as say the intrabacterialis which are swapping so, 
them on uh, transport ons. So, so we often um, we sometimes think about you know we are used to thinking about carbapenemase production in interbacterales and like we'll screen for it and we've talked about that quite a lot before about how you do that and you know it's really important to pick up from that patient's management but also from an infection control perspective from public health and I think we talk about this in pseudomonas quite a lot but as mentioned by Jane there like it's not the most important cause of resistance not the most common so we have a bit of a higher threshold for sending these organisms off to reference labs to do PCR for carbapenemases or doing that yeah. locally because you know that the carbapenem resistance yeah. might be mediated so I see meropenem yeah. resistance I'm like well it's much more likely to be sort of the other resistance mechanisms rather than the carbapenemase yeah. like accommodation of but if you see something that's like folks, if it's yeah. resistant to carbapenem and piptaz and keftazidemin then it probably will check for PCR mm, because yeah, it will yeah, help yeah. with your management options and infection control. Sure. Um, then uh, when it comes to aminoglycoside resistance, the um, main resistance mechanism uh, would be kind of efflux and, and reduced permeability, but they can also have uh, AIMS, aminoglycoside modifying enzymes. Yeah. And we've and talked about them a lot in the Idiot's Guide to... Uh, to yeah, so we did, yeah. To... So they they carry them with a rate of between six and fifty percent. So maybe, if, you know, maybe call it twenty five percent. They can also do stuff like um, uh, uh, methylate sixteen uh, s uh, RNA. That's not very common, but what they that then does is it protects the sixteen uh, s uh, against binding of aminoglycosides. And there is uh, something else called Fuse A one. Uh, so that codes for elongation factor G, which is involved in translation of um, uh, proteins, and that mutation will confer a four to eight fold increase in resistance against uh, aminoglycosides. And if you combine that with uh, MEXXY OPERAM uh, efflux pump, then you get high level uh, resistance against uh, aminoglycosides, and that could be universal as well. So, as opposed to an AIM, which oh might confer resistance against one aminoglycoside but not the other you can get global uh, resistance there it's not good no and, and then, then what about quinolone resistance our last last group yeah so the there are three main ways that you can get resistance to quinolones one is through mutation of dna gyrase so either through the gyra or b subunits and then a risk factor for that is is prolonged exposure of um the patient to cipro uh, for example, CF patients, and that the how they work is they just reduce binding of superfluxin to DNA gyrase, and then topoisomerase. Uh, they've got a couple of subunits called PAR C or PAR D, and so that mutation uh, can happen as well. And then uh, efflux pumps is is the main way, and then you can get variable resistance depending on what combination uh, of these mutations you have. So high level resistance would be. Uh, you usually need GYRA mutation. If you and if you combine GYRA with PARC, you get high level resistance. Low level would be GYRB, PARC, PARD, or efflux pump, but on their own without anything else. And it, you can get an intermediate level with a combination of any of the two, of GYRA or B, PARC or PARD, or an efflux pump as long as it's not the combination GYRA with PARC. So you said that usually we think about quinolones having quite a high barrier to resistance in things like intrabacterales, but in, in Pseudomonas you said it was lower, so why is that? Well, I think it's because it's... 
I don't know exactly. I just uh, but but the paper that I'm I'm basing all this on kind of makes the point that Pseudomonas has loads of different weapons. You know, that's five resistance mechanisms right there. Yeah, and uh, it can use them in any combination, and it can acquire them, you know, fairly uh, fairly quickly. And maybe that's not something that the other um, uh, targets of ciprofloxacin mm. uh, can necessarily do. I guess linking up the sort of resistance aspects with the infection control aspects is that if you've got an organism that's really great at forming biofilms and sticking in your built environment or on, you know, prosthetic material and it forms biofilms, you know, you end up with a situation we've got loads of organisms surviving mm. in the presence of antibiotics, particularly within, you know, like a perfect example is a drain. Um, you know, it's hardly surprising that the pseudomonas is able to to swap and talk to each other and, you know, be exposed to antibiotics and, and pass it along. So it kind of it kind of makes sense, isn't it, that it's such a pain? Because, you know, it's kind of the two things go together, the fact that it can survive in the environment and then, you know, all these... And it makes sense evolutionary before we came along using antibiotics for human... You know, like bacteria are constantly fighting, competing with each other in the environment. So if you've got an organism that's really good in a moist environment, of course it's going to try and, you know, resist antibiotics. But that's a real pain for us. Yeah, I suppose I haven't, we haven't even talked about biofilm formation, which Pseudomonas is, uh, is excellent at. Um, we'll have to have a biofilm episode. Yeah, I think, just to draw together some, some points on this, I think for me the main things that with Pseudomonas that are important is that it's uh, the infection control aspects and water and the resistance difficult to treat yeah. in the special population of people that have a degree of immune compromise or prosthetic material or a sort of disrupted barrier. And that's the sort of the sort of free corners of this triangle of, of danger that Pseudomonas poses to people in hospitals. And it's it is a definite heart sink moment when you see the culture result as a pseudomonas there. So what? Stop them getting it. Source control. Judicious use of of the yeah, few yeah. weapons and 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 and, 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 to, and, and um, you know the good laboratory work, getting the susceptibility testing done yeah. right, and and figuring out what you can use. But yeah, real real problematic stuff. And so I think yeah, we, we've we've been away from our bacteria episodes. Hopefully, we'll come back to them um, in more consistent thing i think we were both kind of putting off pseudomonas because it is so complicated and jane thanks for having done all the prep work there to to talk me through that because that was um i'm, I'm struggling to get my head around there but, and every time i talk about it and think about it it's reminds me how complicated it is well i did you know before i um had done a deep dive into this i didn't really realize how complex the non-beta lactamase resistance mechanisms that that pseudomonas has where and that's you know um uh, it'll all be in the prep notes um, for the for the loyal listeners. It's still way more than I think you need, but I, I think if you come out of this episode with a healthy respect, if not fear, uh, for pseudomonas, then we'll have done our jobs right. Yeah, we're, we're maybe the hub of pseudomonas, and we're linking out to all our esteemed colleagues in in the much more uh, <laughs> like established podcasts. Yeah, uh, breakpoints and the infection control ones, and we'll put. I'll maybe we'll collate some episodes if you are you know really wanting to 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 dig your teeth into pseudomonas, mm. um, because you know as a as an infection an infectionologist, uh, you you will be dealing with this, and it'll 
be causing problems. So good yeah. to know as much as you can about it. Yeah, I think knowing how to deal with that is, um, particularly if you've got any exposure to ITU, it's time well spent. Yeah. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Have a five-star review in your pocket? Callum and I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod, and if you want to uh, support the show, there is a link to do so uh, in uh, the description. Uh, but until next time, I'm Callum. Uh, what? Oh no! <laughs> what? What have I done? It's because I'm live and I'm looking at you. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, this is okay. He's so smooth. No, we're keeping <sighs> that in. I'm James. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know. Thank you for listening to the Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content, so please don't blame them if we get something wrong.